On September 4, 1989, Maria Buchard went to check on her daughter, Joan Heaton, 39, and her two grandchildren, Jennifer 10 and Melissa 8, at their home on Metropolitan Drive in Buttonwood area, Warwick, Rhode Island. She was concerned because she hadn't heard from them over the Labor Day weekend. She had tried calling her several times and no one answered. Maria's other daughter, Mary Lou, went with her to Joan's house. It was a visit that would change their lives forever. Hello everyone, I'm your host, Linda Hubert, and you are listening to Beware, True Crime. Thank you so much for stopping by. If if you would please hit your follow, subscribe, and share buttons, I would really appreciate it. This episode will make you mad, make you sad, and make you cry. It's long and intense, so let's buckle up and let's get started. answered at Joan's house. They knew Joan must be nearby because her car was parked in the driveway. So they rang the doorbell several times. Still no answer. They decided to look inside. When they entered, they knew something was terribly wrong. The inside was splattered with blood and the smell in the house was just horrible. As they walked further into the house, they made a heart-wrenching discovery. In the hallway, they saw Joan lying beneath a blood-soaking sheet, and her oldest daughter, Jennifer, was laying nearby. Melissa was in the, in the kitchen on the floor. All three had been brutally murdered. Marie and Mary Lou were horrified. Just days earlier, Marie had spent the day with Joan and her grandchildren, shopping and enjoying time together. It was hard to imagine that they were all dead now. Maria and Mary Lou called the police. Within moments, rescue workers arrived and were shortly followed by detectives. The house was cordoned off and crime scene was strung around. Detectives were shocked at the brutality of the crime. Even the most seasoned investigators had difficult holding back tears. All the victims had been stabbed multiple times with kitchen knives. The youngest child, Melissa, was stabbed so hard that one of the blades had broken off in her neck. She also had blunt force trauma to her head by a kitchen bar stool. On top of the 57 stab wounds, Joan was also bludgeoned and strangled. Talk about overkill. It was believed that they were murdered three days earlier. These horrible murders were the worst the city had seen in years. News of the triple homicide sent shockwaves through the small town. No one felt safe, and residents looked to the police for answers. Even though the investigators had little to go on, they vowed that they would find the murderer, and it was a promise that they would keep, and a shock it would be.
the Warwick Police Department had their three best detectives working on the case. They were determined to catch the person responsible for the murders, and they worked day and night reviewing evidence, interviewing locals who had any kind of information related to the crime. They even enlisted one of the FBI top profilers, Greg McCrary. McCrary believed the murder was likely someone from the Heaton neighborhood. He was also he also suggested that the crime could be connected to another unsolved murder that took place two years earlier in Buttonwoods. The two crimes were very much alike. In July 1987, Rebecca Spencer, 27, was found dead in her living room. She had been stabbed repeatedly with a packing knife. At the time of her death, she was preparing to move to another neighborhood. In both the Heaton's and the Spencer cases, the killer used a weapon that was already present in the home. This presents strong evidence that the killer originally entered the residence for another purpose, such as to burglarize the house. It was likely that the intruder was caught unaware and murdered the, the eyewitnesses using what McCrary referred to as a weapon of opportunity. Robbers often burglarize houses they know. The more familiar they are with the houses, the more successful they will be. Usually, burglars choose houses close to where they live. McCrary suggests that in both cases, the murderer likely entered the residence with the intention of robbing and probably was familiar with the house and or the residence. However, he believed the murderer lived in Buttonwood area because both crimes were committed only five houses apart. Some similarities between the cases was the overkill. Joan and Rebecca were stabbed approximately 60 times each, and each child was stabbed 30 times. Due to the excessive nature of the crime, it was highly probable that the same person committed both murders. McCrary suggested that to the investigators that the frenzied manner of the stabbing used to kill the Heatons likely resulted in the murderer stabbing his own hand. He told them that they should look for someone in the neighborhood with a cut or a bandage on their hand. McCrary advised was to great use to the detectives because it narrowed down the search for a suspect. They had a location in which to begin and a possible suspect with a cut on their hand. All they needed now was some luck and hard work. On September 5, 1989, just one day after the bodies were discovered, investigators got their first real break in the case. Ray Pendergast and Mark Bredith was driving through the park near Buttonwoods, where Pendergast spotted a familiar face. They stopped the car to talk to a neighborhood boy named Craig Price. He was only 15, who Pendergast once coached at his local basketball program. Pendergast asked the young boy if he'd heard about the murders. Craig responded that he was aware of what had happened and that he had seen the bodies coming out of the house the day before. He lived just a few doors down from the Heaton family. 
During the conversation, Pendergrass noticed that Craig had a bandage on his hand. Suspicious, he asked him how he hurt himself. Craig claimed that he got drunk several nights earlier and punched his hand through the car, through a car window on Keenly Avenue. At the, as the detective pulled away, they couldn't help but wonder if Craig was telling the truth about his hand. Why would he admit to two cops that he vandalized a car and he'd been drinking? It seemed unlikely that a teenager would commit such a crime as the Heaton's murders, let alone such a good-humored kid as Craig was. However, the fact that the boy had a cut on his hand and lived on the same street as the Heatons, it was much too much of a coincidence to be ignored. It was something both officers felt that they should follow up on, so they did. The detectives wrote up a report and began to investigate Craig's story. They learned that there was no police report on a car window being smashed in the area, and they also found that there was no glass on the street where he said that he broke the window. The two detectives began to further doubt Craig's story. Craig became a viable suspect, but he was only 15, and if this murder was connected to Rebecca Spencer's murder two years earlier, he'd only been 13. Even though many of the department believed that the officers were wasting their time, Pendergrass and Brandreth decided to follow their gut feelings and pursue Craig as a lead. They just needed more evidence to support their theory. In the meantime, expert blood analyst Dr. Henry Lee was contacted by the police and asked to examine the Heaton's residence. He went to the house and analyzed the blood splatter and the trails. During his investigation, he gathered vital evidence from the crime scene, including a bloody sock imprint. Whoever left the imprint wore a size 13 shoe. Pretty big for a 15-year-old, but Craig was not an average teenager. He was 15. I found in my research that he was 6 foot 4 and 240 pounds at 15 years of age. Now, that's one big boy. And a, and a record of breaking and entering, theft, peeping Tom, and using drugs. Well, let's take a closer look at Craig. He was also known to have a violent temper. Police had been called to his house on more than one occasion to settle a dispute in which he was involved. Investigators decide it was time to question Craig more thoroughly. They went to Craig's house and asked him to come with his parents to the police station, which they did. During questioning, Craig was asked more details about how he cut his hand. He maintained his story that he hurt himself while he was breaking into a car. Investigators were not convinced and asked him if he would take a lie detector. The following day, Craig came back to the station for the polygraph. He was asked questions relating to how he cut his hand. The test revealed Craig was lying. According to Lang, it was the first big break for the detectives.
Even though the polygraph proved that Craig was lying about how he cut his hand, it didn't prove that he was involved in the murders. Investigators need more evidence. Now, who is Craig Price? Craig Chandler Price was born October 11, 1974. He and his two siblings grew up in Warwick, Rhode Island. Their parents worked blue-collar jobs. Craig's father, John Price, worked at a local Kmart in the management position. His mother, Shirley, was in the clerical department at the Kmart. They were members of the Baptist Church and attend regularly. I have found no information that there was any abuse in the family except for the few times when the police were called to calm Craig down. I even read that in his earlier years, Craig was a very happy child, bright, and one that would go out of his way to help anyone that needed it. There were reports by the age of nine, teachers started seeing changes in Craig, and not in a good way. He, became, he started to become an angry child. During interviews with Craig's friends, investigators learned that he ran with a gang of juvenile delinquents who was known to burglarize houses, drink, and do drugs such as LSD. More interesting, they discovered that Craig boasted one time about killing Rebecca Spencer. It was the first evidence they had connecting Craig to a murder. In fact, investigators were quick to obtain a search warrant for his house. Detective Kevin Collins, Arthur Anderson, and Tim Colgan organized a search team. They devised a plan to set up overnight surveillance of the house before actually serving the search warrant. They wanted to make sure that Craig was there and he didn't leave the house. In the early morning hours of September 17th, detectives gave the sign to move into the house. A team of officers, led by Collins, Anderson, and Colgan, rang the doorbell. Craig's father answered the door and was shocked to see the police on his doorstep. He had no choice but to let him in. The rest of the family, including Craig, his mother and his brothers, were awakened and asked to sit in the living room during the search. They were all upset by all the drama, except for Craig, who dozed off on the couch. It didn't take investigators long to find what they were looking for. While searching the shed behind the house, a trash bag was found full of incriminating evidence. Within the bag were several bloody knives from the Heaton's household, along with bloody articles of clothing, gloves, and other objects. Investigators woke up Craig since he had dozed off during the search and arrested him for murder for Joan, Jennifer, and Melissa. Surprisingly, he seemed unaffected. Craig was taken from his house to the police department with his parents. Remember, he's only 15. He was booked, read his rights, then interrogated. The detective hoped Detectives hoped that Craig would come clean about his crimes. They got way more than they dreamed of. During the interview, Craig amazed the detectives when he immediately confessed to the Heaton murder. Now, I watched his interrogation, and it was unbelievable. He 
was just sitting back acting like he was telling you what he did at school that day. He described in detail the events of the horrible night. Although his story seemed to change, he finally got worn out and decided it was easier to tell the truth. According to Lang, what came out of his mouth shocked even the most experienced and jaded cops and sent his father, John Price, to the men's room to throw up, and he didn't return. Craig's mother, however, was horrified but stood by her son as he told the detectives what took place in the Heaton house. He told the detectives that his intention was to rob the house. He said that he found an open window in the kitchen, which he crawled through. He accidentally landed on a table and broke it, but despite the loud noise, he continued. He claimed he walked through looking for items to steal. He didn't realize that the noise had woke up Joan. She walked into the kitchen and spotted Craig when she turned on the light. In a state of panic, Craig said he grabbed Joan, then he beat and strangled her. Joan screamed, waking up her two children, who were half asleep and stumbled out of their beds to the hallway. Melissa ran to the kitchen to call the police, but Craig overpowered her. Craig tackled the girls to the floor, then went to the kitchen, grabbed some knives, and began to stab them. During the attack, one of the girls bit Craig's hand. In a fit of rage, he bit the girl back on the face. Craig also bit Joan. Then he smashed the youngest girl over the head with a bar stool. He was a monster. Craig didn't expect that the three would put up such a fight, but they did. They fought with all their might until they couldn't fight anymore. Craig said that during the murders, he had accidentally stabbed his hand. He removed his glove he was wearing and took care of his injuries in the bathroom. Well, better take care of myself here. He didn't realize that he left the trail of blood and the sock print behind. Evidence collected from the crime scene was later found to support Craig's story. The blood analyst conducted by Dr. Lee showed that some of the blood samples matched Craig's blood type, and Craig's shoe size was the same as a sock print. There was no doubt about he was telling the truth. Craig further admitted to covering the Heaton's bodies with the blankets. He then tried to clean up the crime scene with towels, but he feared if he stayed too long, the police would catch him. He quickly gathered the knives, the gloves, and some of the bloody towels and ran from his from the house to his home, which is only two doors down. Two doors down. Craig said he would, he immediately returned to his home, which was only two doors down. He confessed that he had hid his blood-soaked clothes in a bag in the attic. Detectives were alerted, and the evidence and was later found in the bag exactly where Craig said it would be found. Following Craig's detailed accounts of the Heaton murders, he surprised detectives again. When asked about Rebecca Spencer, Craig admitted that he also called, killed her. He was just 13 years old at the time. Man, what a monster. Craig had no difficulty remembering his first murder. He provided investigators with details of what happened that night while showing little remorse of what he had done. After his 
His confession, a wave of disgust mixed with relief, passed over the detectives. Four murders were solved within a space of several hours, but they were all sick and exhausted. Investigators working on the case were glad they finally had their man. They just hoped Craig would get what he deserved, preferably a very long prison sentence. They would have to have a long wait for that. You don't even know the half of it, but we will take a deep dive into that. Craig Price had the law on his side. Despite the brutal murders he committed, Craig would never face a trial to serve prison time because he confessed to his crime just weeks before his 16th birthday. According to Rhode Island state law, all the courts could do was hold him in a training school until his 21st birthday and no longer. You heard that right, a training school until he was 21. That's five years. Unbelievable. Craig would be a free man with a clean record, but wait. A very, the very thought of Craig serving only five years in a training school for four brutal murders enraged the citizens of Rhode Island, especially the family and the victims. It was obvious that the law was working against them. However, at the time of Craig's offense, teenage serial killers below the age of 16 were rare. According to my research, I could only find two. In fact, Craig was considered to be one of the country's, country's youngest serial killer. Even though Craig could not be tried for the murders, he still had to undergo a court hearing before he could be placed in the training school. On September 21, 1989, Craig appeared before Judge Carmen DePlarto, I don't know if I'm saying that right, at the Kent County Courthouse. During the brief proceedings, Craig was charged with the murders and the burglary, and he pleaded guilty. Craig was ordered to serve five measly years at the Rhode Island Training School Youth Correctional Center, YCC, a maximum detention facility. He was also ordered to undergo an intense physical, physiological examination and therapy. However, Craig refused the treatment. He also refused to officially discuss the murders at all by pleading the fifth. Oh, yeah, now he doesn't want to talk. He was bragging about the murders earlier. Now he's pleading the fifth. Craig withdrew from the diagnostic and the treatment program arranged by the judge on the advice of his lawyer. According to court documents, the reasoning behind the decision was based on fears that the psychiatric examination might result him being placed in a psychiatric facility behind, beyond his 21st birthday. Despite court interventions, Craig stuck to his guns and, refu and refused to submit to any psychological measures. In the meantime, Craig carried on with his life within the training school. He completed his GED and was taking satellite college courses. He believed he needed to improve himself academically so that he could get a good job when he got out of YCC. By 1993, 
Craig developed a reputation for good behavior within the training school, even though he refused his treatment. In fact, he was in such good standing that his superiors granted him permission to cancel other use in the facility. Oh, that's somebody I want mentoring other use. In 1993 article in the Providence Journal, Craig also performed light security duties, which included patrolling the school hallways. Craig was even allowed to make a rap video at the school, which included threatening lyrics. When the news broke of Craig's special treatment at the facility, Rhode Island citizens and the families of the victims demanded that it be stopped. They were outraged, as I would have been. After such protest, it ended, but the bigger problem still remained. Time was running short, and Craig's release date was quickly approaching. There was less than a year and a half left to work out a way to prevent him from being freed. There were four people that we determined to make Craig pay for his crimes. Joan Heaton's mother, Marie, her sister, Mary Lou, Captain Kevin Collins, who led the Heaton investigation, and an assistant attorney general, Jeffrey Pine. They were fighting for Joan and her daughter, and Joan's daughter's justice. They were relentless. From the beginning, they lobbied the Rhode Island le- legislation to institute a new bill to prevent Craig's release and others like him. They went out of their way to inform the world of Craig's crimes and his upcoming release. Together, they tried every possible avenue to prevent, to prevent Craig from ever having a chance to murder again. In 1990, Pine and Collins were key figures in investigating, instigating the passing of the O'Neill Bill, which toughened sentence on, sentences on teenage murderers. In 1993, Pine introduced a controversial bill that would give the Office of the Attorney General the power to civilly commit a mentally ill individual to a mental institution if the person posed a danger to society. Many thought the bill was discriminating against the mentally ill and give those psychological problems a bad name. It was also argued that the bill specifically targeted Craig and could be used to prevent him from being freed. Well, duh, that's what they were trying to do. Pine stood his ground. His main interest was making sure Craig stayed locked up for as long as possible. Lang quoted Pine as saying, I will do everything I can to prevent another tragedy which to his delight and that of the family of the victims, the Craig Price bill was passed that same year. It was a huge step, which they hoped would result in Craig being forced to submit to the psychiatric diagnostic treatment program. In October 1993, Collins organized citizens opposed to release of of Price, Corp., the nonprofit organization concentrated on raising funds that would be used to increase public awareness about Craig's crimes and assist with lobbying efforts. The goal was to get 
a critical bill passed that would prevent Craig from being released. Marie and Mary Lou also helped lead the growing campaign. They traveled throughout the state alerting the general public about Craig's upcoming release. According to a Time article, the group worked endlessly rallying to get funds, petitions signed, and information to the public, hoping to make Craig Price's name a household word. Within months, the organization attracted hundreds of volunteers, raised tens of thousands of dollars, and gained national attention. While all this was going, going on, Craig was preparing himself for his new life. By the end of the year, he had already been ordered on six occasions to adhere to the mandatory psychiatric evaluation and therapy. Nonetheless, he continued to refuse for fear he would be forced into a mental institution after his five years at the training school. However, his days were numbered. Him hiding behind the Fifth Amendment was going to come to an end. Finally, May 1994, President Bill Clinton flew into Providence where he was scheduled to meet and discuss state affairs. Thousands of demonstrators were circling his plane that carried the banner, Alert! Killer of Four, Craig Price, Moving Here. That is what greeted Clinton when he arrived in the city. It was clear that the citizens of Rhode Island wanted something done about Craig Price, and they were not going to give up until the problem was solved. In a television interview, Clinton expressed his dismay about Craig being let out in approximately six months. He suggested that the records of a juvenile offender should not be sealed, he also mentioned that the laws needed to be changed to prevent juveniles with violent histories from purchasing a firearm. Well, he didn't use a firearm, he used a knife. But, okay, we don't want him to have a gun either. Just 15 days after Clinton aired his comments, Rhode Island lawmakers reviewed a bill concerning public access to juvenile criminal records and juvenile gun laws. However, the problem concerning Craig's release was still unanswered. Craig's luck was about to run out. On June 8, 1994, Rhode Island residents were shocked to learn that Craig was indicted on one count of simple assault and extortion for threatening to injure an officer. A trainee school employee, one week later, Craig was arraigned and bail was set for 500000 which I don't understand that because he was still in his detention center. His trial was scheduled for later that fall. That same month, Craig faced another problem, his refusal to submit to the psychiatric evaluation and the therapy had gone on too long. The courts were pissed. He was warned that he was in danger of being held in contempt of court if he failed to undergo the treatment, yet he wouldn't do it. Craig's hearing took place on June 27th at the Providence County Family Court before Judge Jeremiah Jr. 
during the proceeding, Craig was again ordered to undergo the psychiatric exam, but his answer remained the same, no. The judge found him in civil contempt and added an, an extra year to his incarceration to be served at an adult correctional institute in Rhode Island. The only way that Craig could reduce that sentence was submitting to the court order. After almost five years, Craig finally complied with the order and agreed to undergo a psychiatric assessment. Dr. Barnum, a psychiatric forensic psychiatrist and a, the former head of the Boston Juvenile Court Clinic, led the evaluation. Even though Craig participated in the assessment, he didn't do it wholeheartedly. In fact, it was discovered that he lied about many of the events concerning the murders. It was a matter that would later be addressed by the family and, family and district courts. In the meantime, all eyes were focused on the upcoming trial. On, on October 3rd, 1994, Craig's trial began at the Supreme Court in Providence. It was a long-awaited showdown that held the media and the country in suspense. A majority of those packed the courtroom were anxious to see if justice would finally prevail. They wouldn't have to wait very long. Judge Thomas Needham was presiding over the case. Attorneys Robert Mann and Katie Hain was the defense team. Prosecutors packed Patrick Youngs and Mike Stone represented the state's case against Craig. The Hush Cush courtroom listened intently to the opening statements made by Stone and he pro processed as he was prosecuting one of the state's most highly publicized trials. He told jurors that they would learn how Craig verbally assaulted Petrella after he was given a disciplinary report to sign a possession of contraband material, cigarettes, and a lighter. Moreover, they would hear how Craig threatened the officer if he continued his job at the facility. The prosecutor planned to produce five witnesses. Man's statements followed those of the prosecutor. When he addressed the jury, he didn't deny that Craig was angry at Bertella's report or that he used inappropriate language during the confrontation. After the opening statements, the prosecution called their first witness, Mark Bertella. For two hours, Bertella gave a detailed account of the confrontation and how Craig verbally attacked him using profane profane language and then threatening to snuff him out if he ever returned to work. He also said that several officers witnessed the incident and tried unsuccessfully to calm Craig's increasing volatile behavior. Jurors also heard the testimony of four other witnesses who worked in the training school. Their stories agreed with Bertello's account. Author Lang claimed that at the end of the day, the state rested. He was pleased that he had gotten their point across and the facts were heard. 
The next day, as the proceedings were set to continue, man asked to excuse the jury so he could address the court alone. Once the jury had left, man asked the court for an acquittal based on insufficient evidence. The judge denied the request and ordered the proceedings to continue. As the trial continued, the de defense team introduced Antoine Carter as their first witness. Carter was an employee at the training school who witnessed the argument firsthand between Petrella and Craig. During his testimony, he claimed that he never heard Craig use the word snuff against Petrella. Moreover, he suggested that he didn't take any security measures during or after the incident because he didn't believe the dispute was life-threatening situation. However, during the cross-examination by the prosecutor, Carter contradicted himself by indicating that Craig's ac actions were threatening. The defense case was weakened by Carter's statement. They decided it was time to bring in another witness who worked at the facility. Yet, when the man took the stand, he also suggested that Craig acted in a threatening way towards Petrella. The defense case was beginning to fall apart. The next day, man decided to let Craig testify on his own behalf. It was the moment everybody was waiting for. All eyes turned their attention to Craig when he recounted the argument he had with Britella. Craig told the jury that after the cigarettes and lighters were found in his possession, Petrella gave him the impression that he would not report the incident. He suggested that he suggested that he was surprised and then angered by Petrella presenting him with a disciplinary report later that day. He admitted to shouting profanities at the officer also denied having ever threatened to snuff him out. Craig believed that Pertella's report was part of con a conspiracy to keep him locked up. During the cross-examination of Craig by the prosecutor, Craig flew into a rage claiming that everybody lied and just wanted to get him in trouble. He said he was the only honest person who had taken the stand during the trial. In fact, he accused the prosecutor of being at the head of the conspiracy to put him behind bars permanently. Craig's outburst marked the end of the trial. Both the defense and the prosecuting teams prepared to present their closing arguments for the following day. By the time of the news of Craig's testimony hit the stand, many believed that the hope of him being a free man was only a matter of time. It was only a matter of time before he finally got what he deserved. On October 6, 1994, the defense and the prosecuting teams presented their closing arguments. Following brief but powerful arguments, the jury retired to deliberate on the case. It would take them a day to reach a decision. The next afternoon, the jury returned their verdict. Craig was found guilty on both counts of extortion and simple assault. According to Lang, when the verdict was read, those listening seemed to feel that what 
he was really found guilty of was long-ago murders. Relief spread throughout much of the courtroom as fears of Craig returning to society rapidly diminished. That December, a hearing was held to determine Craig's punishment. Judge Neiman sentenced him to 15 years, eight of which were suspended at an adult correctional institute in Cranston. But Craig's problems were not over yet. According to a 2004 article in the Providence Journal, Craig bit a correctional officer's finger during a brawl in 1996. The article stated that the prosecutors took the uncommon step of charging him for a probation violation, even though he was still in prison. He was charged with the assault. Craig was found guilty and sentenced to an additional year in prison. The next year, Craig was placed on trial for criminal contempt because he failed to comply with the psychological evaluation ordered by the state. See, he was said during this examination that he had to tell the truth and had to be honest about everything he said. The charges stemmed from him telling the psychiatrist who he claimed he lied about the events surrounding the murders. During the trial, Craig admitted to the charges, and he was eventually found guilty. According to court records, Craig received an additional 25 years on top of his other sentences. Ten of the years were going to be served outright with 15 years of probation. In October of 1998, Seven more years were added to Craig's sentence for assaulting another correctional officer. It would be it wouldn't be his last time. In February '99, again, and October '01, Craig was sentenced to a total of four more years, again for physically assaulting a correctional officer. Price was denied parole in March 2009, and his release date was set for May 2020. In 2004, he was transferred from Rhode Island to Florida to serve his time due to his violent tendencies. In Florida, July 29, 2009, Craig was involved in a prison fight with another inmate. While trying to break up the fight, one of the correctional officers was stabbed with a handmade ship in Price's possession. In the wake of the present fight, Price was transferred to another facility, Shawnee Correctional Institute in Live Oak, Florida. I bet they're happy to have him there. On April 4, 2017, Price was accused of stabbing a fellow inmate, Joshua Davis, at the Shawnee Correctional Institute in Live Oak. With a 5-inch homemade knife, man, that guy liked knives, didn't he? On February, on January 18, 2019, he was sentenced to 25 years for the crime. To date, there is no telling if Craig Price will ever be released. Craig is currently serving his time in another prison in Florida, Union Correctional Institute, Ralford, Florida. I just hope that he is never returned to society. But that's our story about Craig Price.
Thank you, everyone. This is Linda Hubert, the host for Beware. If you could please take your time and hit the follow, the like, and the subscribe button, and the share button, I would really appreciate it. Until next time, beware. Thank you.